Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. There was once a man called Dionysius. He was the king of Syracuse on the island of Sicily, 350 years before Jesus. He was a vicious man, a tyrant. He dealt with his enemies in the most cruel fashion, and he had many. He subjected his people to impossible taxation while he himself lived a life of luxury that would rival that of any billionaire today. He was wealthy, he was powerful, and he was miserable. The source of his misery was his paranoia. With so much prosperity, He had so much to lose. With so much brutality, he had so many enemies. With so many enemies, he had so many fears. He retreated into his castle, a fortified citadel protected by his mercenaries. He slept in a guarded bedroom with a single door, the room surrounded by a moat. He only trusted his daughter to cut his hair or to shave his beard and supervise his meals. He had everything he ever wanted, and he was a prisoner to it. One day, a court flatterer came along, a little bootlicker showering compliments on the king, talking about how wonderful and perfect his life must be. The sycophant's name was Damocles. The king said to Damocles, if you find my life to be so enviable, why don't we switch places for a day? You, Damocles, will serve as king of Syracuse for a day. Damocles could not resist. Who says flattery will get you nowhere? Arrangements were made immediately. Damocles was placed on a lavish golden couch. Servants were put at his disposal. Food, drink, sex, music, entertainment. It was all his. And as he was enjoying the first hour of his good fortune, his eyes rose to the high ceiling of the citadel. And there, Dionysius, heartless man that he was, had suspended a mighty razor-sharp sword. And it hung there like a guillotine, ready to drop, held in place by a single strand of horse's hair. And now, no matter what indulgence was offered to Damocles, king for a day, he could not enjoy it. Not with that swinging sword constantly hanging over his head. The slightest breeze, the most minuscule tremble would be the end of him. And Damocles gave up the throne as quickly as he had received it. The sword of Damocles has been a standard tale of the Greek wisdom tradition ever since. It's also where we get our phrase, hanging by a thread. And his sword cuts in several directions. One, do not envy The place of the wealthy, the successful, and the powerful. It's not as carefree as you might think it is. 
As Cicero said of the story, there can be no happiness for one who is under constant anxiety. Second, to be human is to be vulnerable. We are all prone to letting things or people or desires into our lives that only hurt us. We really want something or a person or an activity But before you know it, you're staring at that blade dangling over your head. It's hanging there by the slimmest of margins. And what was going to be good, you had every intention that it would be, becomes this awful, spirit-crushing anxiety. Proverbs 4, listen carefully. This is life and healing. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. In biblical literature, the heart is a complicated thing. As it is in English. We're going to have to do open heart surgery. I've got heartburn. You broke my heart. Put your heart into it. She is such a bleeding heart. My heart just sank. And of course our personal favorite. Bless his heart. I mean if you were an alien. And you came. To to, to this planet, I don't know why you would, but if you were an alien and you came to this planet and you heard the multiple ways that we use the phrasing heart, you would have no idea whatsoever on what we were talking about. Is it an organ inside your body? Is it courage? Is it strength? Is it emotion? Is it spirit? Is it intellect? Is it mind? It seems to be everything. And when you read the Bible, the Hebrew and Greek writers They do the same thing. This complicated use is not confined to English speakers. The word heart is used more than a thousand times in the Bible. One of the Bible's most common words. It speaks of a person's sinner, physically, of course, but it is also his or her emotional or spiritual nucleus. We speak about the heart feeling. It has joy, it has sorrow, it has rage, it has peace, love, doubt, or fear. We speak of the heart desiring and wanting something, emotions put into motion. The Bible talks about the heart thinking, remembering, meditating. The heart can see. It hears beyond the physical. And the heart can decide. It can choose. It can make a conscious commitment. The heart is what we speak of when we are talking about all of our internal processing and our rumbling gyrations, all of the drivers that are inside of us. Here's a good summary from Oswald Chambers. He says, quote, According to the Bible, the heart is the center. The center of physical life. The center of God's working. The center of the human mechanism. The heart is not just where your emotions are. It is the center of everything You are. Ten ounces of muscle inside your chest. Ten ounces. Keeping you alive right now is no less than what we associate with our identity. Our real being. Our true selves. And it's always been that way. Those ancient Greeks, and we borrow their word, they spoke of the heart as cardia, the core. It is our essence. And before them, our spiritual ancestors, the Hebrew, in their language, heart is leb, L-E-V. It means back and forth, obviously. The beating of the heart, how it goes back 
and forth. But the ancient Hebrew wisdom is that the heart is your engine. It is what gives you motion. It is what moves you to do the things that you do. And something that is that important and that essential has to be protected. It was just three years ago, this month, that we all, against our will, added an essential accessory to our fashionable wardrobes. The mask. Mask up and keep social distance. Dealing with the first global pandemic in a hundred years. We had no idea how it might spread, how deadly it was. On the last talk I gave before lockdown, I said this. I'm not a physician, you should listen to yours. I'm not a scientist, you should listen to what they say. Hard science, not conjecture, rumor, or wishful thinking. I'm not a politician, I can't recommend you listen to any of them. I'm not a Wall Street broker. I have no idea what they are advising these days except to treat your investment like your face during an outbreak and don't touch it. But as one with responsibility, we will take necessary steps to protect each other. And I quoted Herschel York, who at the time, very early on in the pandemic, said, I do not fear catching coronavirus. I'll survive or I won't. But I do not want my sense of bravado or invincibility to hurt someone else. Because that is arrogance and selfishness. And he's still right. I'm no prophet, but I did say in March of 2020, act as good neighbors. In service, not retreat. The time of crisis calls for faith, not fear. Helping, not hoarding. Perseverance, not panic. Love and courage, not recoil and self-protection. You probably have enough toilet paper already. And I, ant- I, and I anticipate that this disrupt- disruption will be much longer than two weeks. And how? And the impact will be far-reaching in a way that exceeds anything anyone on this planet has ever witnessed. And even after the virus wanes and normalcy returns, the economic and communal fallout, the recovery will take a long, long time. I wish I had not been right about those things. We will soon see a billion confirmed cases and seven million deaths. And the long-term health effects for others, including yours truly, is a wild card. We have no idea. The mask, and we hated them, didn't you hate them? Was a line of defense, an attempted line of defense, to keep the germs out if we could. Meager as it was, to try to stay healthy. And that's how I read this text in Proverbs. This text is an opportunity to really blame and shame, and it's been used that way. What are you letting into your heart? How could you contaminate your mind in this temple God has given you? Why aren't you praying more or reading the Bible more or something more? But I don't read it like that. I read it as a boundary-making initiative. It is giving us permission to keep away from the things that are harmful, people who are toxic, involvements and entanglements that are no good for you, that take life from you instead of giving life to you, the core of who you are, your essence, your life, your true self, why would you waste those things on people and activities that are assaulting you instead of helping you? And sometimes the things that hurt your heart aren't bad. They're just bad for you. Reminds me of an old Waylon Jennings song. 
She was just no good for me. A line goes like this. She was a good-looking woman, no doubt, a high-stepping mover that men talk about, but everything bad in me, she brought it out. She was just no good for me. But it wasn't her, it was him. He goes on to say this. She looks like an angel, it's a perfect disguise, and for somebody else, she might be, but she was just no good for me. We have to know what is bad for us. An animal knows what's bad for itself. A child knows what's bad for himself. And we tend to forget it. You have to have boundaries to protect yourself from yourself. And I know that about me. Sarah Knight years ago wrote about something that she just simply calls personal policies. You got to have a few personal policies to keep yourself out of trouble. Can I get an amen? I've got a few. Like, number one, I don't do shots. It's a personal policy. Now, it's no secret that I like a little whiskey in a jar with a little ice, but if we're out at a restaurant and you turn to me and you say, let's go to the bar and do some shots, you're going to be drinking alone. It's a personal policy, and it cannot be changed. Number two, I don't join boards. Not anymore. Oh, Ronnie has been in this community for years. He knows people. Let's ask him to serve on our board. And every time I say yes, it starts out so well. I want to help. I generally want the world, even my small world, to be a better, more peaceful, more just, more welcoming place. But I always, always, always overcommit every time. And I've learned that taking on more responsibility just because I can, just because I might be good at it, doesn't mean it's good for me. It only stirs up my misplaced idealism. Number three, I don't work with jackasses. I don't hang out with them. I don't want to be around them. If you're mean, if you're unkind, if you're a bully, if you're an unrestrained egomaniac, I don't care if you're richer than Bill Gates, smarter than Stephen Hawkins, more talented than Beethoven, and more connected than a Kardashian. I'm not playing with you. I'm not mad about it. I'm not going to be nasty in return. I'm simply old enough now and I'm tired enough and conscious enough of what people like that do to my soul. Why would I let them hurt me? Why would I be the one to make the choice to let someone else hurt me? In a recent study of Paul, I was reminded of words from his letter to Titus. He says this, Avoid foolish controversies and arguments and quarrels because they're unprofitable and they're useless. Warn a divisive person once, warn them a second time, and after that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful and they are self-condemned. The New Testament has a phrase called, shake the dust off your shoes and move along. If I had another half hour this morning and I don't, I would lead us all in an exercise that my friend PJ Hickey conducted for me as I was recovering from COVID. My health wasn't good. My mental health was terrible. I was about to quit everything. And do what? I don't know exactly. But I just couldn't take it. PJ and his wife, Reedy, are as wise a couple as I know. They have 
quietly been a great support to this congregation, both accomplished in their own fields. Reedy as an educator and PJ in the restaurant business. He's former president of the National Restaurant Association. And I shared all my weariness with him and my frustrations and my apprehensions one day at lunch about my future. And he said, <laughs> Big Ron, it's not that hard. Big Ron. Yeah. PJ's like this tall. Big Ron, it's not that hard. Let me show you. And he took a napkin. And speaking of simplicity, all great ideas should fit on the back of a napkin. And if they don't fit on the back of a napkin, you need to go back and rethink what you're doing. So he takes out this napkin, napkin, and he says, uh, here, let's do this. And he made three columns. And he said, all right, here on the far left, make a list of the things that give you life. I mean, they get you up in the morning. And you can do these things. Now, they may be hard things. They might be difficult. You might need a break from them sometimes, but you love it. And these things love you back. Make that list on the left. Middle column, take it or leave it. A negotiable area, activities, commitments, obligations that are open to discussion. You have space to navigate. Right column, this is the oh hell no list. And PJ did not say it that kindly. I am editing this talk for content and audience. Write it down. With the time and energy and life that you have left, make a list of those things that you are simply not going to do anymore. And don't do them. Big Ron, it's not that hard. So simple. But it's so liberating. Most of us have never really done that. We just float along because this is where our lives have taken us. And sometimes we have to stop and ask ourselves, am I really doing the things that I want to be doing? I'm a grown man. I'm the only one that can make these decisions for me. Now, I don't have napkins and ballpoint pens for everyone here today or for everyone who is listening to this now and those who will listen to it later. But you have those at home at the restaurant today over lunch, alone with your partner for yourself or your family or on your job or for your company, it's not that hard, but you have to do it. What gives you life? What can you take or leave? And what will you not spend another minute on in the few precious minutes you have left in your life? Focus, clarity, simplicity, these don't happen by accident. These are conscious choices that we all have to make. You can make those choices, but you must make those choices. Your very life, the one precious, fragile, ever quickly passing life you have been blessed with, depends upon it.